At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Without you, Lord, we can do nothing. We realize that without you, Lord, we are nothing. We're still broken and lost in our sin without you, Jesus. So would you help us, God? Would you help us surrender to you? Would you help us trust you? Would you help us see the parts in our life where we haven't surrendered to you, God? We all have them. Whether this is our first time at church or our hundredth time or our five hundredth time at church, Lord. We all have areas of our life we need to surrender. So would you show us, God? Would you help us see them? And God, would you help us give it all to you, Lord? Would you help us give our finances to you, Lord? Would you help us give our friendships to you, Lord? Our relationships to you, Lord? Our spouses to you, Lord? Our jobs to you, Lord? Our money to you, Lord? Would you help us surrender it all to you, Jesus? Because it's all yours anyway. And Jesus, we confess again. We need you, Lord. So would you come now? Would you visit us? Would you be in this place, Jesus? And as your word goes forth, Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you open your minds? Because, God, we confess and we know that more than anything else in this world, more than any quick solution, Jesus, we need you. So we surrender to you, God. We worship you. We thank you. We thank you that we can be here. We thank you that you stopped the rain. We thank you. You're so good to us, Lord. Your mercies are new every morning, Lord, and you're doing stuff for us that we can't even see. So we should be forever thankful and worshiping you, God. So we praise you, we worship you, and I pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. You can put your hands together. Thank you, worship team. You guys can be seated. I think that's a beautiful song to start with, uh, surrendering it all to Jesus, something we all need to do, something uh, I pray that all of us have done in here. For those of us um, who are maybe still struggling, struggling with sin, that is the answer. The answer is to surrender it all to Jesus. That doesn't mean you're not going to still have times. That doesn't mean you're not going to still have struggles. You're not going to still have ups and downs. You're not going to still fall to sin sometimes. But when we surrender it all to Jesus, he works in a way where his power is made perfect in our weakness. So I think that's so key, Lord. And I pray that, again, that all of us can more and more Run to Jesus, surrendering it all to him. I don't know about you guys, though. Um, I've surrendered it all to Jesus, but there's still moments in my life when I look around and I see the circumstances around me, and I see the pain, the brokenness, the hardship, the difficulty, the challenges of my life, and though I've surrendered it all to Jesus, so I've placed all my faith in Jesus, it's still hard. I find myself sometimes even doubting. Doubting whether or not maybe God's real. Whether he sees you. Whether he really cares for you. Whether he has your best interests in mind. See, sometimes when the circumstances 
of our life seem to be against us, we can question this. But this isn't what God wants, and this isn't true. In fact, God does have our best interests in mind. And when we surrender it all to him, he meets us far more abundantly than we could have ever asked for or imagined. I read a commentary on the book of Lamentations uh, written by Stephen Smith, and he says this about this issue, this challenge of doubt in the face of trial. He writes this, The resolution to the problems that we are facing right now cannot be seen right now. When we think our world is falling apart, it might be falling in place. Many times I have thought that some incident in my life was the death of a dream, the death of a hope that I had. The reality is, and the reality was, that God was creating something far better than I could have ever imagined. I only needed to trust him in that moment. The greater reality lay on the other side of the great pain. I don't know if you can look back in your life and remember a moment of great pain, but also remember that God brought you through that to a greater reality that you might not have experienced unless you went through that pain. I know I can, and the lament uh, that we're looking at today in Lamentations chapter 5 really addresses this. It addresses what to do when we are in pain, that we can keep a hold and believe in the promise despite the pain that we're facing. We can look from the rubble of the life to the redeemer of every hurt. And our big idea today, and we're going to hit on this a couple times, is that lament brings us back to God. Lament brings us back to God. So again, we've been in Lamentations the past number of weeks. This is our sixth week. It's our final week in the series. We're going to be in chapter five today. We're going to read through the whole chapter. And when we read this chapter for the first time, it might be, might be challenging because it seems like maybe even whiny hopelessness, if you will. It seems like the poet is just complaining the whole time. But when we look deeper, we see that this is actually a very powerful prayer. Because when you look at it more closely, you see that the, uh, the lament, the prayer, actually assumes that God can see him. It assumes that he cares, and it assumes that he can act on the trial and the pain that they're facing. And that's really God's expectation of all of us. That no matter whether we're going through a good time or a hard time, and especially when we're in a hard time, that we can give everything to him in prayer, that we can believe in the promise while we're still in pain. So today we're going to be looking, again, Lamentation chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bible, and we're going to break it down into three parts, where there's really three main areas of lament that the poet, probably Jeremiah, uh, is going through in this passage. So let's open our text. We're going to start in verse 1, Lamentations chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to start with verses 1 to 7. If you don't have your Bible, the words should be behind me on the screen. It says, remember, O Lord... What has befallen us? Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Verse 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. When we look at this first section, verses 1 to 7, what we see is that the poet is lamenting their disgrace. He's lamenting their disgrace. He's reaching out to God. He's crying out to God and saying, remember us, Lord. 
look and see what has befallen us. He's looking around, and all he can see is pain and disgrace, and he's crying out to God in the midst of all that. It's important for us to remember that when the poet here says remember, he's not saying remember because God has forgotten. In fact, God cannot forget. It's against his character. He's all-knowing, right? But what he's doing is he's calling on God to remember. He's calling on God to remember and look on something that he already knows. He's calling on God to act on their disgrace. And this is really what's laid out in the next couple of verses. In verse 2, we see that he laments the disgrace of their inheritance being turned over to foreigners. Israel was God's promised people. And after they were in slavery in the Exodus in Egypt, God brought them out of slavery and brought them into the promised land. The promised land was really the physical evidence of their covenantal relationship with God. But now, as the Babylonians had come in and besieged their whole country and destroyed the temple, destroyed everything they knew, their inheritance, their physical evidence of their covenantal relationship with God that God gave them is now in ruins. Their homes are inhabited by foreigners. The shame and disgrace that they were feeling would have been deep. It would have been unimaginable, really, for them. Unbelievable. As he keeps going in verse 3, he laments also the disgrace of them being widows and orphans. See, when they, when they came, he, they, they, they broke up the family. There's no, there's no fathers. There's no, the basic element of the social structure has been broken. They've uh, turned into a vulnerable and weak people. There's no families. There's orphans. There's widows. The basic unit and mechanism for uh, preserving their inheritance, which is passed down through families, has been broken up. They're lamenting their disgrace. What else does it look like? Well, in verse 4, it says they're having to pay for the basic needs of the land. The land that God has given them freely, they're now having to pay for the basic needs of the land. They're being pushed to exhaustion by soldiers in verse 5. And finally, they're humiliated. Uh, by having to make alliances for basic needs with countries like Egypt and Assyria. Something God never intended for the people of Israel to have to do. And then in verse 7, in the midst of all their disgrace, they declare the real reason for the disgrace. They declare the real reason for all the pain that they're experiencing. And it's their sin. And specifically here it refers to the sin of their, the previous generation, the sins of their fathers. The sins of the previous generation and their fathers are causing and having an effect on the present circumstances of the people of Israel. They're in trial and tribulation because of the previous generation. This reminded me of someone else that I recently met uh, that went through extremely difficult circumstances uh, that were out of his control at first. He's a pastor in Miami last Last week, I went back to my old seminary and attended a class there, and, and this man was teaching, this pastor was teaching this class, and he recounted uh, his, the original story of when he started his pastorate at this church. He felt God calling him to Miami, and uh, when he first arrived at the airport, so he first arrives at the airport with his family at his new church where he's becoming the pastor of, just arrived, first time he's been there. And someone he doesn't know comes up to him. And he says, I know who you are. You're coming to be the pastor of our church, aren't you? And he says, yes, sir. Yes, yes, I am. He's like, you need to leave this city. You're not welcome here. 
In fact, I hate this city. I'm leaving this city. You're not welcome here at all. He told three or four stories like this of random people he's never met coming up to him and telling him to leave. The pain of his disgrace was so much. And when he started the pastorate of the church, he realized that his pain was only just beginning. In fact, when he started at the church, he realized this church of about then uh, 300 people was really run by 100 people. They had snuck their ways into all the different committees and boards and elder boards and deacons into all the areas of the church where there were decision rights. And the problem was that a lot of the things that they were instituting were against the word of God. So this pastor is struggling. He's in anguish. He's in pain. He believes God's brought him there, right? But he doesn't know what to do because he can't implement change. The power is too, is too strong. And for two years, he wrestled with this. One day he finds himself in his car. He couldn't take it anymore. He was worn out. He was tired. He was stressed. He didn't know what to do. He was at his end. But he cried out to God. He lamented to God. He said, God, would you help me? You brought me here. I don't understand the circumstances that I'm going through. I don't understand why this is so hard. But would you help me? God, if I'm not supposed to be here, please take me away. God, but I believe I'm supposed to be here. I see all the disgrace. I see all the rubble. I see all the pain, all the brokenness around this church, but I don't know what to do. Would you please help me? And in that moment, he felt God telling him to stay there. Fast forward uh, to him. A couple years later, as he's leading this church, God finally gives him an idea. Though he can't change some of these broken doctrines of the church in meetings, God reminds him that he could change it through teaching the word of God. So what does he do? He, he starts a sermon series on 2 Timothy because he knows that he's going to get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where God said that all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable for teaching. All scripture is the ultimate truth. And he's standing in front of his church holding up his Bible and having them repeat after him that the word of God is the one source of ultimate truth. And then what he does is he takes the church's constitution and he holds it in the air and he puts it on top of the word. And he says the problem with our church is that we're taking the constitution and we're putting it as the ultimate truth over the word of God. You can imagine at that moment he recounts that the whole church just collectively gasped. They couldn't believe what their new pastor was telling them. Fast forward again, three months, and he's in the front of the same church again. It's packed out. There's no room to even stand. They're having a meeting to decide whether or not he would continue as a pastor. You can imagine there's a lot of tension in the building. He had really shaken up this church. And what happened is he gets on stage and he's going to give an account. And give an account why he believes he's following the word of God. And he gets on stage and he's standing in front of a packed room. And he's so terrified that he can't even talk. In fact, he recounts that his whole body was shaking. The microphone was shaking. He couldn't even say a word. And then one of the, the previous pastors, someone else who had probably been run out, comes up to him and says, I got to go take a seat. And he takes the microphone and he points out in the crowd at someone and said, your pastor is a faithful man of God. And you should continue to follow him as your pastor. The problem you're facing is that guy right there. And he points to the leader of this group of people. These 100 that had been leading the church in an unfaithful way. And what happens? That guy stands up. 
His face is bright red as he accounts, and he starts coming towards the stage as if he's going to get in a fight, as if he's going to literally fight these two pastors. Okay? What happens next is unbelievable. There's a lady sitting in the front row. These are his words, not mine, so don't give me any looks when I say this. A short, about five foot tall Latino sister who's a faithful woman of God sitting right in the front row, right, in, right by the aisle. And as this guy's storming up to the stage, this woman grabs her purse and backhands him right in the face, knocking him completely on his back. At that moment, this pastor says that all those people, those 100, they were trying to tear apart the church. They picked up their friend, they walked out, and they never came back again. Today, that church, we can praise God for that. Today, that church has grown. It's over 11,000 members. There's over 70 different nationalities. What a beautiful picture of heaven. What's the point of that story, though? The point is not that if someone is leading the church astray, we should hit them with our purse. In fact, I don't think Pastor Ryan would appreciate that in the service today. The point is that he would have never gotten to the moment where the church is at now. And he's not arrived. The church isn't perfect. But he would have never gotten there unless he cried out to God at the moment that he was at the end and was honest with the pain that he was struggling with. In that moment, God gave him the strength to face what he didn't even know what was coming. And God, through his lament, through his pain, through his willingness to go through the pain and continue believing in the promise to do an awesome work in that church. And that's the same thing that's going on with Israel right here. In this story, everywhere Israel looks, there's pain, there's devastation, there's brokenness. It looks like all is lost. Their nation is ruined. But instead of running from the pain, instead of pushing it down, instead of pretending it's not there, the people are lamenting to God, crying out to him in all of their disgrace. And this is exactly what God's calling us to do, church. This is exactly what God is calling us to do when we face challenging circumstances in our life, when we face difficulties that we don't know how to get through. Maybe some of us, we're going through circumstances. They're out of our control. We don't understand what's going on. We've tried to fix it, but we can't. We're out of ideas. We're at our end. Maybe God's calling us to, instead of push it down and go and do something else, to lament that shame, to believe in the promise while we're still in pain, all the while honestly bringing our struggles and our brokenness and our doubts to God. For other, others of us, maybe the distress that we're feeling right now is because of our own sin. You see, just because Israel, uh, this, this Israel this group of people that had been conquered by Babylon are pointing to the sins of their father, just because they're pointing to the previous generation doesn't mean that they were completely blameless. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But what are we doing with our sin? Are we pushing it down? Are we pretending it's not there? Are we letting ourselves be overcome by shame? Or are we bringing that lament to God. The beautiful thing is when we bring it to God, as it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But church, whether we're struggling with sins or just the circumstances in our life that are out of our control, God is calling us to lament because lament brings us back 
to God. So the first thing that people lamented was their disgrace. The second thing that we're going to see them lament is their enslavement. So let's pick back up in our Bible. We're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to read to 16. It says, Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands and no respect is shown to the elders. Verse 13, young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased and our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Again, the second thing that the poet is lamenting here is he's lamenting their enslavement. He moves from lamenting their disgrace of their circumstances to lamenting their enslavement. And verse 8 really sets the tone for this whole section. Remember, Israel had been brought out of slavery by God in the exodus to the promised land. And now what happened? Now they are ruled and enslaved by the lowest ranks of their conquering enemy. This is something Israel would have never imagined would have happened again. In verses 9 to 16, the poet continues to lay out the graphic state of their enslavement. In verses 9 to 10, it talks about how food, again, during the exodus, when Israel was in the wilderness, God literally brought down manna from heaven right to their door every day for them to eat. So a people who had food delivered to them directly by God are now struggling to find food, struggling so much that they have to do it in the wilderness at a great risk to their own lives. And then in verses 11, it lays out um, one of the most evil dimensions of war in all ages, including today, which is rape, and specifically the rape of women of all ages. This is obviously traumatic and terrible for the women, but it's also tragic for the men and that, that are left in this community as they were called and their culture taught them that they were to protect their wives from this such of thing. Moreover, it attacked the nation's purity and eradicated their bloodlines. Not only are the women mistreated, but the men are given no dignity. And princes, the people who would be ruling, are executed. There's no leadership or governance by the elders anymore, and the young, the kids, have no joy in music. This text portrays the silence of a whole culture, trampled underfoot, as all that is heard is the sobs of the raped, the groans of the hanged, and the gasping of the overlooked. This text doesn't hold back from what's really going on in their nation. And the, their joy, the people's joy, has been turned completely to mourning as they lament their enslavement. Then in verse 16, a recognition of their own sin comes up. It says, woe to us, for we have sinned. This might be the simplest, shortest, honest, most honest moment of self-awareness in the whole book where Israel, through the prophet, is, is proclaiming that the suffering, the enslavement, the distress that they're facing is because of them. The sins of the previous generation and their generation have led this to the point there is nowhere for them to hide. It's sad. They're broken. 
Another way to read this verse, another way to translate it is, if only we had never sinned. I bet some of us have said that before. If only I had ne ne never gotten in that car. If only I had never answered that text. If only I had listened to my parents. If only I had taken the advice of my, my mentor, my a man who, or a woman who was discipling me. In John 8, 34, it says, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. When Jesus says this, he uses the analogy of a slave on purpose. Slaves have no will of their own. They're in subjection to their master. In the same way, when we're enslaved to sin, for those of us who don't know Jesus, and the Bible says that those of us who don't know Jesus, who don't have a relationship with Jesus, are enslaved to sin. For those of us who don't know Jesus, this is our relationship to sin right now as a slave, that we have no will of our own, that we're controlled by our sin. I remember when I first came uh, really to the terms of my sin and my enslavement to it as I was sitting in college, laying in bed, realizing that I didn't even know how many nights in a row I had been drinking, that I didn't even know who I was anymore, that I didn't even know how I had gotten to that point, and that I didn't even know how to stop, that I had no control that I was completely enslaved to my own brokenness. But the good news is, by the power of Christ, we can overcome that enslavement. Amen? But first we have to ask if we are enslaved to that sin, if we are enslaved to sin in general. If so, are we lamenting it to God? Do we know whether or not we're enslaved to sin? Some of us, I also think, we try to, maybe we have a relationship with Jesus, but we try to fix our sin on our own. We say, I'll come back to church once I get myself right. We try and think after we fall again and again and again, this time I'm serious. This time I'm going to stop for real. But what happens is we always fall right back on our head. In Hebrews it says that God is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? That means that God is the one who brought us originally into relationship with him. It's not us. It's not of our own doing so that no one can boast. But it also means that God is the perfecter of our faith. That he is the one who sanctifies us. That he is the one who's going to one day glorify us and make us completely clean. It's a work of God. And that's the purpose of lament. That's the purpose of lamenting your sin. That's the purpose of lamenting your enslavement. Because it brings us back to God. The one who can actually help us. And the good, beautiful part about that is when we've been buried with Christ, when we have a relationship with Christ, Romans teaches us that we can walk in the newness of life. This is beautiful because in the newness of life, in relationship with Jesus, there's joy. There's peace. In the midst of difficult circumstances, maybe around us, there's peace. The last thing we're going to look at today, the last area that the poet is really lamenting is their estrangement. The poet moves at the end of this chapter to lamenting the people's estrangement. So let's pick back up and we're going to finish this chapter off starting in verse 17. It says, for this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion which lies desolate. 
Jackals prowl over it. But you, O God, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The last thing we see the poet lament here is the people's estrangement. When we hear the, the word estrangement, I want us to think separation or alienation. The people of God, Israel, are estranged in their relationship with Yahweh. They're estranged in their relationship with God. The sins of the present and past generation have caused the people to be completely estranged from God. In fact, they're estranged to the point that all of what has been described in this chapter and this book, it says, has caused their hearts to become sick in verse 17. The culmination or summation of all this is that Mount Zion, once a holy city set on a hill, it says in verse 18, lies desolate, empty, destroyed, to the point where Jackals are prowling over. And an animal Pastor Ryan described to us last week uh, illustrate abandonment or isolation. But what I think is there, it's true that the people of Israel had physical desolation. It's true that we have desolation in the circumstances in our life. But what's really going on here and the really important thing that I think we need to hear is that their physical desolation is symbolic of their physical, of their spiritual, excuse me, their physical desolation is symbolic of their spiritual desolation and estrangement from God. But then comes one of my favorite words in all of Scripture. In verse 19, we see the word, but. From the lowest point of Israel's degradation, from the lowest moment, as they look at Mount Zion, completely defiled, completely destroyed, their nation completely broken, their women raped, their princes executed, their children doing the work of slaves. As they look at everything around them, they have a moment of hope. And that moment of hope is centered around the enduring throne of God. See, God's presence might not be in the physical temple anymore as it's destroyed, but God is still sitting and enduring on his throne in heaven. And for this reason, the people of Israel and us today, we have reason for hope because as long as God is sitting on his throne, he sees us and he's sovereign and he has the ability to act on our circumstances. And the people of Israel believe that. That's what the poet is expressing here. In the midst of all the pain they're describing, they still had hope because they knew that God was on his throne. That's not the end, though. In, in verse 20 and 22, we see the poet questioning God again. Despite their hope, he's still struggling a little. He says, why did you forget us forever? Why have you forsaken us for so many days? In the end, it says, unless you have utterly rejected us. He's not completely ruling that out. Because when he looks around him, he sees the brokenness. He sees the pain. He sees the rubble. He sees the hopelessness, the fatherlessness, the brokenness of the community. And as he sees that, it feels as if God might have forgotten him, as if God might have forsaken them. 
as if God would be angry with them, with them forever. This is how the Israelites felt in this moment. And this is how we feel sometimes. But God desires that we bring these things to him. And that's what Israel is doing here. They're bringing all the ugliness of their pain directly to God. It reminds me uh, of my childhood. And I don't know if any of you in here have one of those dads. And my dad's here today, so I'm going to embarrass him a little. That when you went on a road trip, it didn't matter if the road trip was one hour long or four hours long, or maybe even 13 hours long. Once you got in the car, you're not stopping until we get there. Unless, unless our car is completely out of gas, we're not stopping. We got to get to the destination. I don't know if anyone else had one of those dads. I did. And we used to, I was born in Michigan. I lived a lot of my life in Virginia, but I have a lot of family here. So we would make that 13, 14, 15, depending how far north you're going out, uh, long drive. And literally, once we got in that car, we didn't know when we were stopping again. We were praying to run out of gas. Because at some point, you got to go to the bathroom. And when you're a kid, you don't think about drinking too much water or pop. You just keep going. And I remember crying out, how much longer? Are we there yet? This is taking forever. It felt almost as if even at times he had completely forsaken us, like he forgot about us. Now, obviously, that's a funny example, right, for a more serious thing. But the truth remains that my dad didn't forget about us. That trip didn't take forever. Obviously, we got here. I'm here today. Um, there might have been some struggles along the way. But we made it, right? My dad didn't forget about me. And the same thing is going on here. And, and Jeremiah, he addresses this in chapter 3. And early in our series, we talked about this, that despite all that was going on, he knew that God would not cast them off forever. And the same thing is going on here. God hadn't forgot his people. God hadn't forgotten the Israelites. It might have felt that way in the moment. They might have looked around and seen and thought that they were completely forsaken, that they had been utterly rejected forever. But that wasn't the case. And I think what's beautiful about this section is that it reminds us that God isn't toppled by our questions. God isn't toppled by our difficulties, our challenges, our sufferings. In fact, he welcomes those things. And what the people of Israel here are doing is they're bringing those things to God. And that's what God wants us to do too. He's not toppled by those things. He's not scared away from those things. He desires that we lament those things to him. Finally, towards the end, we see that the poet desires to be completely restored back to God. Obviously, that the people of Israel this time desired that the physical things, that their nation, that their homes, that their temple would be rebuilt, that God would renew those things. Obviously, that is true. But what is in mind here when he uses the word restore, which could also be translated as return or renew, is not physical. It's spiritual. The people of Israel were estranged in their relationship from God. They were separated from God. And the poet here, the people of Israel, desire to be restored back into love and relationship with God. They're feeling the shame and the weight and the estrangement that results from their sin. But they desire to be renewed. They desire to return and come back to Yahweh. 
See, lament looks through the fog for the grace of God. And the pain that we express in lament has a purpose. Um, lament involves an appeal to God while also maintaining that he's sovereign. Also maintaining that he is in, in, in control. It, it requires an honest recitation of what is going on. And again, this pain has a purpose. In fact, most of, of Lamentations, as we've seen, is the poet expressing pain. 17 out of the past 22 verses we just read in chapter 5 are painful. Are the poet expressing his pain? And this has a purpose. Mark Vorgott puts it this way in his book on Lament. He says, the full throttle cataloging of pain sets the context for the call of God to, the, to remember. However, it has been my experience that many Christians are uncomfortable with the tension of the long rehearsing of pain combined with the appeal to God's grace. We tend to hush the recitation of sorrow. However, uh, restoration does not come to those who live in denial. I'm going to read that part again. However, restoration does not come to those who live in denial. I wonder what would happen if more Christians confidently walked into the darkest moments of life and guided people in talking to God about their pain. Church, are we living in denial? Are we living in denial of the disgrace? The painful circumstances that we're seeing in our life. Are we living in denial of the enslavement to sin? If we're not a follower of Jesus. Of the effects of our continued sin. Even though we're not a slave. For those of us who do follow Jesus. Are we in denial that we're actually estranged from God? We come to church. We do good things. We check off a lot of the boxes. But in reality, we're far from God. We're estranged. We're alienated. We're separated. See, the essence and heart of lament is that we can be aware and open about the pain in life, but also understand and know and proclaim that God is sovereign. It holds these two tensions in hand, that life is challenging and overwhelming and difficult and ununderstandable at times, but also that God is sitting on his throne, that he endures forever, that he's in control, that even though we might doubt, he does have our best interest in mind that even though we're facing pain right now he is going to glorify us one day for those of us who have placed our faith in him so today maybe you're wondering i hear you but how is this helpful because the pain i'm facing is so much the circumstances i'm in are so challenging it seems that evil maybe even is winning the day or maybe you're just walking with someone or you know someone who the circumstances of their life are so exceedingly challenging that it causes you even to question God. I think what lamentation, lamentation excuse me, does is that it shows us that God's sovereignty and his reign are not negated by suffering. That God is still in control even through loss. That we can look through the fog and believe in the promise that he still reigns even when our future might be unclear. And I think this, this really is the thing we need to leave with today. It's true, again, the Israelites were facing the disgrace and the pain of their circumstances, of their nation being completely overrun, of their inheritance, their physical inheritance being destroyed. They're facing 
uh, the reality and lamenting the reality of their enslavement. Their enslavement to the people who conquered them, but also to their sin and the sins of their fathers. But really, what they're lamenting is their estrangement. And their estrangement is the why for their disgrace and their enslavement. And it's the why for why we need to remember our big idea today and the why for why we need to remember to lament to God, whether it's disgrace or enslavement or estrangement, because lament brings us back to God. And God is the only one in all of the universe. There's no amount of money, there's no amount of success, relationship, or anything else that can provide us with comfort, that can provide us with true joy and the fulfillment of a promise. That is, that his children will one day be with him for eternity, that he'll wipe every tear from their eyes, that we'll receive our glorified bodies that will no longer be and pain. It can only come through God. So when we lament, when we're going through difficult circumstances, we need to remember the purpose. And the purpose is that our lament brings us back to God. And finally, I know some of us in here today, uh, the topic of lament, the series maybe even, has been challenging for us because we still don't even know Jesus. We don't have a relationship with Jesus. He's not our Savior. We haven't placed our faith and trust in Him. I want everyone to ask themselves today, is that me? Do I know Jesus? Have I placed my faith in Him? Am I truly estranged from Him? Am I still enslaved to my sins? Because the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to stay that way. We don't have to remain enslaved. Uh, we don't have to remain estranged. In fact, Relationship with Jesus is the opposite of estrangement because it brings love and true, genuine relationship along with hope and peace and joy. The second chapter of Ephesians says this. It says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, excuse me, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. There's that word again. But God. But God, we have, because of God, we have an opportunity in the midst of our estrangement, in the midst of our enslavement, our isolation, our, our distress, whatever we're facing, because of God and only because of God, we have an opportunity to be made alive together with Christ. This was done by his atoning work on the cross as he died on the cross for all of our sins, for every sin, for all of eternity, to be uh, crucified on the cross only to rise again on the third day, defeating the forces of darkness so that we today in Pontiac, Michigan, can put our faith and trust in his lordship and the fact that God did raise him from the dead. And when we do that, we can be made alive together in Christ. We can experience this newness this scripture is talking about. We can experience the opposite of estrangement, which is love and relationship, far greater than any love or relationship that we can have on this earth. So if that's you today, I pray that today's the day you come to know Jesus. I pray that you come and talk to Pastor Ryan or someone else on staff that if you need to come to the altar and confess your sins, whatever you need to do, I pray that today would be the day, if you don't know Jesus, that you can come to him. And say, Lord, I need you. 
I know I'm enslaved to my sin. I know I can't get out of this alone. I'm tired of running from you, God. Today can be the day. Don't leave here today if that's you. Whether we believe in God and have a relationship with him or whether we don't, let's remember, though, that lament, the purpose of lament, whatever we're lamenting, is to bring us back to God, the only one who can bring us freedom and joy. So let us pray. God, I thank you. I worship you. I praise you. I thank you for who you are, God. I thank you that you are the only one who can save us from our sins, Lord, that you sent your son to die for us, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we can experience the newness of life. For anyone in here, Lord, who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be today, the day. Today would be the day where they can experience the newness of life. Today would be the day where they can become a part, a true part of the body of Christ, your church. For those of us who do know Jesus, God, I pray that we can honestly look at our lives. Lord, show us areas where we're still estranged. Show us areas where we're still falling into sin. Not that we're enslaved anymore, but where we're still falling. Help us come to terms and be honest with the distress of our life. Lord, not living in denial. We don't want to live in denial anymore, Jesus. We're tired of it. So God, I pray that you would help all of us, Lord. Whether we know you or we've known you for 50 years, Lord, that you would teach us how to lament today. Teach us how to lament today knowing that our lament can bring us back to God. There's no quick solution to the problems we're facing. We need you, Jesus. So would you come? Would you speak to us? Would you work in our hearts, Lord? And I pray that we would all come closer to you, Lord, through lamenting today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.